We translate for those who can't understand. We write for those who can't hear. We describe for those who can't see. Subti Subtitles and accessibility for film, television and theater. Subti.com Fred, 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 Fred. Welcome to Fred Film Radio. I'm Amani Mohammed. Fred Film Radio, sono Paolo De Marchi. Antanni, sono Sensi, no Sokshinno, hanno showcase. Fred Film Radio, sono Dana Knight. Clémence Ferrilatour for Fred Film Radio, en direct du Festival de Cannes. Fred, Fred, the festival experience in 23 languages. Cinephile, you're listening to The Big Fred Tuesday, Fred Film Radio's weekly show on all things cinema, with a particular focus on independent filmmaking and the international film festival scene. The show is hosted and produced by yours truly, Matt Mikucci. Cinephile, with this show, we begin our coverage of the 2022 edition of the International Film Festival Rotterdam, a festival that I have personally been following for many years now, and that is known for showing and promoting an edgier style of unconventional filmmaking. And so, we will be speaking with Norwegian director Anders Emblem, whose new film, A Human Position, is being presented there. But we will also be looking into a retrospective on Danish silent film star Asta Nielsen that will take place at London's BFI South Bank from the 3rd of February to the 15th of March. The season is called The Eyes of a Silent Star, the films of Asta Nielsen, and we will be speaking about it with its programmer, critic and film historian Pamela Hutchinson. But that's not all, because we will also be celebrating the life and legacy of the great American filmmaker Frank Capra in the latest edition of our regular Celluloid Heroes segment and return with more cinephile recommendations in our celebrated conclusive Popcorn Classics segment. I think that's just about enough of a preview for this tasty new episode of the Big Fred Tuesday. So, fire up an audio teeny and listen to the audio waves as they fly through the air. This is the Big Fred Tuesday. Fred. Joining us at this time is film critic, film historian and silent cinema expert, Pamela Hutchinson. Pamela, welcome to the Big Fred Tuesday. Hello, thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure to talk with you. Uh, I'm a huge silent film fan, so that's pretty much what we're going to talk uh, be talking about uh, over the course of the next uh, 15 minutes or so. But uh, especially we'll be t- speaking about the upcoming BFI retrospective on the vibrant career of Danish star of silent cinema, Asta Nielsen, uh, which will take place at London's BFI South Bank from uh, the 3rd of February to the 15th of March. But first, uh, because this is the first time that we talk, I kind of wanted to begin our conversation with an icebreaker question and ask you about silent cinema. Uh, since you also run the silent, uh, London website and, uh, you know, you're a, a silent film scholar. So do you remember when it was that you became interested in silent film? Do you know what? I became interested in silent film when I was a teenager, but it was a bit sort of faltering. I, I, w- I was a big fan of film. Uh, but, you know, when you become interested in something broad like film or literature, you know, you've got to find that particular area, that particular bit that's going to speak to you. And I think the first time I saw a silent film, I was baffled and flabbergasted and fascinated and intrigued. And then the second time, even more so. And I just started realizing that there was more mystery here and more that intrigued me than anything else that I was watching. And from that point on, I just sought out every silent film I could see. And uh, there have been a lot to see. (laughs) Right, yeah. So what were the first uh, silent films, early silent films that uh, really got you into it? 
Well, the first silent film I actually ever saw is a sort of rather sort of shocking art film called Un Chien Andalou, the uh, Dali and Bunuel film. I watched that in a film studies class. But then I thought, right, I'm going to go back and I'm going to see everything. So I, I, I went back and I watched, you know, all the things that were on the sort of top 10 great silent films, Battleship Tenkin, Nosferatu. But I, you know, I... I was interested in realising that there was more than just a list of classics, you know, that, that were fragments of films. There were films featuring stars that we don't, haven't heard about anymore. And there was there were lots of sort of lost byways and little paths to explore in silent cinema. And that's what really, really caught my attention. And obviously, you know, when you get once when we talk about silent film, then we also bring up the uh, issue or the challenges of preserving them and how just just important it is. But at the same time, how sort of vulnerable uh, an area of the film industry at large it is that of film preservation. So having said that, um, where do you think silent film fits into today's filmic landscape? Uh, you know, in terms of the audience, audience interest, but also in terms of, uh, you know, the way that it's being looked after by institutions. Well, I think we are really lucky at the moment. Um, films are being found, films are being restored. There are lots of festivals, festival circuit these days, and actually just the exhibition circuit, especially in sort of some of the bigger cities, is great. You can go and see silent film with live music. I think that silent film has got sort of two key sort of places, um, key ways that it intersects with sort of modern film culture. I think that a lot of people really appreciate seeing something that has that real live quality. So when you watch a silent film, particularly if it's projected on film and with live music, it's something special. I also think that it's interesting, we look at a lot of modern films being made and how many new films are being made, uh, black and white, or experimenting with moments of silence or different uh, academy ratio frames. It does seem like a lot of people are beginning to to pull back from the sort of conventions of cinema and think, what could I explore? You have a film like The Lighthouse, which pretty much looks like a silent film but with dialogue and you have all kinds of experiments with film form and people are sort of going back and looking at all these different points in film history that they can copy from or borrow from rather be inspired from so i think that people are looking back to silent film increasingly actually yeah 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 i agree we talked about uh some of the films that kind of got you into silent film but if you were to kind of speak with someone who may have an interest in it but doesn't know where to begin what would be your recommendations oh that's such a great question i mean obviously i have to say Astrid nielsen films um one of the things i always say to people is what kind of films do you like because if you love comedy believe me i have a whole list for you i'm going to start you off with buster keaton's one week and then you're going to come back and knock on my door or want more that's it i can guarantee um yeah. But, you know, if someone thinks that silent film is lacking in nuance, if they think that it's not sort of for adults, if they think of it as just sort of fun slapstick, then you have to show them Dreyer's Passion of Joan of Arc, you know, one of the great tragedies shot entirely in close-ups. And because it just shows you that there's the, the silent film, just like Aston Nielsen films, they work because we are so intimately familiar with the sort of landscape of the human face and we read human faces so well and that's what their power is. So I would, uh, I would proceed from those two angles. And after all that, we'll be back and talk about the upcoming Asta Nielsen retrospective at the BFI South Bank in London in a moment. Fred. 
We're back with Pamela Hutchinson, programmer of an upcoming retrospective on Danish silent film star Asta Nielsen, titled In the Eyes of a Silent Star, the films of Asta Nielsen, which again will take place at the BFI South Bank in London from the 3rd of February to the 15th of March. Now, given the times that we live in, Pamela, we should probably specify to avoid misunderstandings, you know, Will the program consist of in-person physical screenings and events? Will they be presented digitally? A bit of both? You know, what's the situation there? As far as I'm aware, we're going ahead in venue um, with live musicians, with introductions in-house. I think some of the introductions may be um, uh, pre-recorded, but most of them are going to be live. We're having a a lecture and panel discussion uh, to open the event. So it's it's all going to be taking place in BFI Southbank. Now, before we get into the program... Simple question, who was Asta Nielsen? Asta Nielsen was one of, well, probably the greatest actress of the silent era. And that sounds a little bit like I'm, I'm, uh, I'm exaggerating to boost the season, but it's true. She was acclaimed as the greatest actress of the silent era. She was one of the very first international film stars. She had as close as you can get to an overnight success with her first film in 1910, she absolutely mesmerised the world. Uh, Apart from America, where people didn't get to see too many of her films, worldwide she was adored and admired for her fantastically compelling, emotive screen acting. Uh, She had... uh, a particular power over audiences because of the way that she sort of reinvented what screen acting could be and her close-ups told a thousand words basically she was she was born in poverty in Copenhagen so she sort of came up the hard way and uh, when she had this big break in film she then devoted herself to basically perfecting the art of film acting and making the best film she could and she really left a remarkable body of work. She's one of those people, sadly, who didn't continue making films, really, in the sound era. And those are the people who we so often forget about. So as much as I've said that she was so popular, she is. She doesn't have the name recognition of many of the other silent stars. Right. Greta Garbo, uh, Gloria Swanson are some of the names that come to mind. Uh, I understand the retrospective is presented in partnership with the Danish Film Institute. I wanted to kind of name them because I think, you know, when you talk about film preservation, their work is just praiseworthy, I think, as is the BFI's work, of course. And I also wanted to ask you kind of a similar question to the one uh, I asked you before about silent film in general. But, uh, uh, you know, given the fact that uh, this is a, a celebration of Asta Nielsen, though, why do you feel it's important to discover or indeed rediscover her works today? Is there anything that makes it particularly contemporary? Oh, I mean, Asta Nielsen was nothing if not a modern woman. Uh, she, the characters that she played on screen were often very modern uh, women, shall we say, you know, the kind of women who went out and played by their own rules. She... Um, and that's something that she uh, sort of acted out in her own life too. She took charge of the work that she did on film and she controlled everything and she was pretty much a genius when it came to the sort of nascent art form of film. But also the roles that she plays are really quite fascinating. And I think a lot of people are drawn to Aston Nielsen's roles um, these days because of the power of the acting, as I say, but because of this peculiar kind of androgyny that she really enjoyed playing with. Um, in comedy films like the ABC of Love, where she sort of dresses up as a man to show her boyfriend how to be more manly, all the way through to when she played Hamlet. And she did play Hamlet, although she played Hamlet as a woman in, in male drag. Um, she's constantly 
sort of playing with ideas about gender and gender roles and what's expected of women. And she often is this sort of wonderfully disruptive presence on screen that I think people will might be surprised by, but will definitely enjoy looking at in 2022. Can you tell me a little bit more about the films that will be screened as part of this retrospective? Well, we're starting with that film that I told you was the overnight success. And sometimes people's first film, you know, is something or nothing. But this film, The Abyss, or it's often called The Woman Always Pays, is really quite a remarkable film in the way that it sets out what you're going to expect from Master Nielsen. It's a, it's a film about a woman caught in a love triangle. And when I say she's caught in a love triangle, there's a real sense of being in a sort of sexual thrall. This is quite a deep and dirty kind of love triangle. And it culminates in this fantastic sequence in which Aston Nielsen dances around her lover with a rope and ties him up. It caused a sensation. I have to say, when you watch that clip now, you think, how do they get away with that in 1910? So we're starting with that. And then we go on and show some more of her melodramas, more in that vein. So we've got things like The Decline, where she uh, plays an aging woman forsaken by her lover. And it's really very moving. And we have the films that she made are sort of inspired or based on great literature. So she plays Lulu in uh, Erdgeist, which is the Frank Vedekind uh, Pandora's Box plays. And she even plays a character sort of based on crime and punishment. We do get her Hamlet as well. And we get to see lots of her comedy. So, you know, because she had this remarkable control of her performance, even though tragedy from a young age, tragedy was everything she wanted to do, she was a remarkable comedy actor. So if you see her in films like um, Zapata's Gang, where she plays a film star, she often plays a film star, uh, or an actress or an opera singer or some kind of performer because she's playing on her own fame, um, who gets caught up with a, a bunch of bandits while filming a film and, you know, gets into all kinds of scrapes. And she's so remarkably physically committed to everything that she does that you're 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 in stitches and you sort of have this feeling at the back of your head that you're meant to be watching an Aston Nielsen film and you thought maybe it was meant to be serious but so yeah we're showing a real selection of her stuff we're showing the one talky that she made Impossible Love in 1932 which she was not pleased with but it really holds up uh, it's a German film because she made most of her films in Germany. Yeah, and actually, I, w- I wanted to ask you about because you know you, you we always read and uh, hear about uh, the the pro- uh, the problems that uh, you know film stars encountered in that transition, that period, the transition from silent to sound. Uh, what are did uh, Asta Nielsen face uh, these types of challenges? Because uh, she really didn't make much after the the early thirties, right? No, I mean she made one sound film, and that's it. So she had actually, when she's her reach into acting, had been through the fact that she had this voice, which she it was actually a very deep voice. So she was very worried about her voice generally. She did a lot of silent performances, um, but her sort of disillusionment with the film industry in general in the late 20s meant that she was very uncertain about going to sound and when she saw some of the early sound films that were made of course we all know all the great ones like the blue angel but there were a lot of bad early sound films made in that transition she looked at it and thought i'm not going to drop my standards this is too bad but she did make this one film impossible love and she was slightly disappointed with it but her voice and her performance in it is is excellent of course, the thing that happens if you're working in the German film industry in the 1930s is obviously that the Nazi regime takes over and you have to sort of, you have to basically join the Nazi party to continue working in the film industry after that point. And that was clearly something that Aston Nielsen was not going to do. 
And then uh, another film that I was uh, pretty curious about is one that I didn't know she uh, that, that existed uh, from 1968. It's a documentary that she directed and it's a self-titled documentary too, right? Yes. And of course, what happened is a documentary filmmaker approached her and said, can I make a documentary about you? And she said, well, yes, of course, but I have right to approval. So he made the film and she didn't like it. So she did it herself. So that's why it is. And it's, it, it features her reminiscing over her career. And uh, yeah, it's really quite touching. Uh, you'll get to see her talking about her life and her work and uh, shedding her final tear for the screen. Wonderful. Well, again, uh, just to remind our listeners that uh, the, the retrospective that will take place at the BFI South Bank uh, is called In the Eyes of a Silent Star, the films of Asta Nielsen, and it'll take place from the 3rd of February to the 15th of March. I think, you know, just uh, looking at the title there, uh, you know, there's nothing like watching films, the uh, silent films theatrically, really. Uh, Pamela, thank you very much for joining us and talking with us about it. Thanks a lot. My pleasure. Thank you. Red Film Radio. Cinephile, welcome to a new addition to our series of Celluloid Hero segments where every week I celebrate the life and legacy of an artist who left an indelible mark on the history and development of film. This segment is essentially split into two parts. The first part is a biographical overview of the artist, and the second part features three recommendations of three different films that I feel serve as a great starting point for anyone who'd like to dig deeper in the work of the artist in question. You may remember that last week I talked about Soviet filmmaker Sergei Eisenstein, whose work in film coincided with a certain desire to proliferate the communist ideals of the early period in the Soviet Union's early history. So, I thought that for this week... I would instead talk about a director who represented the American values of democracy in a style that would forever be associated with his name. Frank Capra was one of the most prominent American filmmakers of the 1930s and a major architect of the cinematic representation of the myth of the American dream. Born in 1897, he was the son of southern Italian immigrants and had no filmmaking experience whatsoever when he directed his first one-reeler for a San Francisco stage actor in 1922. But the experience encouraged him to land odd jobs with slapstick impresarios Max Sennett and Hal Roach. He also eventually directed a couple of films starring popular comic Harry Langdon. In 1928, he began a long association with Columbia and its head, Harry Cohn. There, he cut his teeth on several B-movies and earned a reputation as a prolific and reliable director. His first major notable directorial effort was arguably 1933's The Bitter Tea of General Yen, an erotic drama that owed more to the influence of Josef von Sternberg and showed little of what would become his characteristic Capra-esque sentimentalism. Capra's golden period began a year later with It Happened One Night from 1934, the first motion picture to win an Oscar in all five major categories, including Best Director, his first of three. This screwball comedy and road movie about a runaway heiress and a brash newspaper reporter's blooming romance starred Claudette Colbert and Clark Gable, and it's one of the most loved movies of the 1930s. It's interesting to note that in the 50s, he would attempt to replicate the success of the movie by bringing Roman Holiday to life, a film that would eventually be directed by William Wyler and star Gregory Peck alongside Audrey Hepburn. But I digress. 
After suffering from an undiagnosed burst appendix that had threatened his life, Capra returned to the screen in 1936 with Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, the populist David vs. Goliath fable starring Gary Cooper. The film established the aforementioned Capra-esque narrative archetype with patriotic, sentimental celebrations of virtuous everyman who selflessly speak truth to power in pursuit of the common good. Robert Riskin, its screenwriter and frequent Capra collaborator, was a de facto co-creator of the Capra-esque affirmation of democratic values in film, and his influence should not be understated. Capra continued his examination of the American political system with the subsequent Mr. Smith Goes to Washington from 1939 starring James Stewart and Meet John Doe from 1941 starring Gary Cooper. During this time, Capra remained quite prolific, quickly directing one of the funniest films of its time, Arsenic and Old Lace from 1944, for which Cary Grant was criticised as silly in a performance that has since been profoundly re-evaluated. Capra entered the army during World War II and made a series of well-regarded documentaries titled why We Fight, while serving as a major in the Signal Corps from 1942 to 1945. These documentaries were intended to increase American support for the war effort. Back in Hollywood in 1945, he joined George Stevens and William Wyler, as well as former Columbia executive Sam Briskin, to form Liberty Films. Liberty's first release was It's a Wonderful Life from 1946, starring James Stewart. The film was widely criticised at the time and became a colossal flop. At $500,000, it was the most expensive film of Capra's career and left Liberty in the red. It was only in the 70s, when the film was repeatedly shown on American television, that It's a Wonderful Life garnered the reputation as a Christmas classic. And it's indeed a paradox to think that Capra's best-known movie began his downward spiral. Capra was in fact unable to get anything off the ground for the most part of the 1950s, and his final two films, A Hole in the Head from 1959 and Pocket Full of Miracles from 1961, failed to leave an impression. Capra chose to retire after Pocket Full of Miracles rather than adapt to the new post-studio system filmmaking. He received the Life Achievement Award from the American Film Institute in 1982 and died in Italy in 1992. In a moment, I will talk about three of his films that I feel best represent Frank Capra. But for now, stay tuned for more film conversation in a moment. Fred Film Radio. Joining us at this time is filmmaker Anders Emblem. Anders, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to speak with you. You will be uh, presenting your film, A Human Position, uh, your latest film, at the International Film Festival Rotterdam. Uh, this is kind of an annoying question, but uh, for the benefit of our listeners who have not seen the film, how would you introduce it? And uh, would you be able to kind of tell us a little bit about the story? I will try. Uh, it's uh, it's set in Ålesund. It's the place I'm from on the northwestern coast in Norway. It's sort of a, it's sort of an Art Nouveau city placed on the ocean almost, between islands and uh, mountains and fjords. So, especially in summer, it's quite nice. Uh, but there we follow uh, Asta, who is a journalist in the local newspaper, and uh, we basically follow her life for a bit. And uh, we noticed that she has some some sort of trauma or melancholy she's carrying, and uh, we slowly sort of understand more and more what's what's happening. 
Are there any specific events that inspired this story? Perhaps a newspaper article that you came across or a chair that was abandoned on the side of a, <laughs> of a random building somewhere? I think, I think the chair part came after the idea. Because okay. I've, I've been very hooked on chairs after. But um, in Norway, we sort of, every month or every second month, there's a big, there's a story about how uh, asylum seekers are getting thrown out after living in the country for 10 years, 20 years, and whatever. And the idea is just that it's, it seems very unfair. And then we look into it, and it's so difficult to understand the system and how the law works at all. Uh, but that was sort of the, uh, maybe the spark, but it, it's not a very big part of this film in the end, but it's sort of part of the, uh, maybe the feeling of the character, the feeling of being unfairly tre- treated. Yeah, it's uh, kind of part of a more complex and complete uh, portrait of the essence of an existence, right? That's very big words, and I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> Among the themes explored, I, I love the film, but I found, uh, I found it uh, quite a compelling exploration of uh, melancholia. Uh, do you feel that melancholia is an integral part of this film and of Norwegian society at large? I definitely feel it as part of myself. Um, I think uh, melancholia for me is a bit optimistic. It's sort of a, it's the warmth of sadness, I guess. So for me, it's a bit optimistic because you're sort of realistic in how you view things, but then there is still hope. And that's basically how I approach most of my films. And uh, I think Norway in general has been sort of, uh, it, it's the it's the north, it's cold and it's brutal. So melancholia has sort of been part of our uh, our national story, I guess. But is it only attached to the cold, or is there something something else that we don't know about us uh, foreigners? <laughs> no, because we, we we have it pretty good. At least, at least my generation from the sixties, we've been basically the the wealthiest country in the world, and we used our wealth nicely to sort of have a better society for ourselves. It's not like. Inside Norway, we're not very rich. We just have it very good. So we have all these systems helping us. And uh, maybe maybe it gives us some guilt at some point. And maybe that's why in this film, we, for me, it's sort of saying that we should be better at looking at how we approach uh, society and especially those who doesn't have it as easy. But uh, speaking of Norway, uh, the film is specifically set in the city uh, of uh, Olesund. Uh, yep. which uh, seems beautiful, but dormant. It's also the birthplace of Hedvig Molestad. I don't know if you know her, but she's an awesome guitarist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's great. <laughs> uh, name dropping. How familiar are you with this town? And uh, do you feel like you treated it as a downright character in your film? Because I certainly felt that it was important beyond it just being the backdrop of a story. Yeah, so I'm from there and I live there now. So oh. for me, it does feel like it, it is home, basically. It is quiet. It, it lacks the cultural strength of a city like Oslo or even Tromsø where I'm at now. But for me, I don't treat it as a character. I think that's something that comes automatically and maybe for people outside can see it as a, a bigger part of the film. For me, I'm trying to use the city in a slightly different way than what maybe people from the outside would. I wouldn't, when you see the angles I use, the places I use, they wouldn't be the obvious tourist images, uh, perhaps. And I try to sort of be more relaxed on how I use 
the ocean and the mountains and, and the city itself. Hmm. So you're trying to go for something that goes beyond the kind of cine postcard look uh, for your film. It's something more more real in a way. Uh, yeah, I hope so. Uh, it, maybe it's just for me to get a feeling that it's more real or something like that. But uh, it's also uh, may, maybe it's the benefit of knowing the place that I can go beyond and find the, the different angles to it. Uh, does that approach have something to do with the title of the film, A Human Position? Uh, because I was also wondering about the, the meaning of this title. For me, it's, uh, it's a play on word with, uh, with the chairs and how we sit as humans, we sit on chairs, which is uh, when you think about it too much, it becomes very weird that we we'll sort of develop this, this, ba- this base way of sitting and socializing. It's uh-huh. on a chair, while uh, no a- other animals has something like this. And also, it's a position we take in society how we how we view things, the how what's your values, and how do you see others. So that's sort of my approach to it, at least. I, I also uh, tend to associate chairs with power. Uh, was uh-huh. that thought at the back of your mind too, or? <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> I think. Uh, I don't know why, but when I think of chairs, uh, Anders, one of the things that comes to my mind is that scene in Borat where uh, he sits on a chair and he's like, "Look at me, I'm king of the castle." <laughs> no, it's funny <laughs> because really it's always funny when you get a new perspective on what I've been uh, making for a few years. <laughs> but I never thought about it. But if it makes sense, it's perfect. Uh, no, but chairs me because uh, the the area I'm from, Sunmöre and Olesund, it's it, it was sort of the center of furniture industrial design earlier in the uh, last century. So a lot of production was going on there. So I basically just been collecting old chair from chairs from that area and uh, just putting it, making it a a local thing and uh, and a beautiful thing. I do like uh, this mid century. Things like every every other people who sort of get into it. <laughs> Anyways, uh, we'll be right back for more in a moment. Fred, we're back with filmmaker Anders Emblem, uh, director of A Human Position from the 2022 International Film Festival Rotterdam. Anders, let's talk about style because A Human Position is a slow-paced, soft-spoken film that unfolds in successive tableau. What do you feel is the potential of filming in such a way? I think it's been slowly just going towards a more more um, specific style, yeah. Because the main ideas are so strong to me that we we can make images that last a bit, so that the viewer can have time to think and reflect them and get into it and make themselves part of the uh, meaning and story. And that way, like the idea then is that you get a stronger emotional connection. Uh, to it because you're part of it. Um, that's sort of the basic idea. And then also, I like, I really like just visually. It's how I want images to be in a way. Uh, and then it's the difficult part of making the slightly uh, tableaus and all that stuff and mixing that with realism is, uh, that's the interesting part because you, you can, you can argue that this is very, artificial how how we set up the camera but at the same time if the image lasts long enough it becomes just a window into whatever scene we're in 
Yeah, but sometimes it doesn't uh, work, this style. It works with your film. And I'm trying to uh, uh, understand why. Is there like a, a, a rhythm to it? What's, what's the trick there? Are you a musical person? Very much so. Music is sort of my... Uh, if I choose an art form, it's music. And I always use a lot of music when writing. And I did make some music when I was younger. Not that anyone should hear it, but it, it sort of was my start i did you know programming and rhythm and finding the feeling and all that stuff really works with making a film just having it in your gut and feeling what's the good rhythm for stuff yeah like the and, groove of the film yeah yeah and i think also because i know what kind of style i want to make in that's i write script to fit those images so it's not a it's not a, a it's not a thing that i adapt later it's like i i have to find the image and then write to it in a way yeah, yeah, there's a confidence to it for sure. So how does the acting, uh, I mean, how do the acting performances fit into this filmmaking style? Do you hope to play uh, with this idea that the actors should forget there's a camera pointing at them? Uh, because occasionally in this film, the very placement of the camera is interesting and almost unorthodox. Yeah, so it's kind of funny. I had a Q&A here uh, yesterday at, uh, at Tromsø and uh, the, the actor, the lead actors were there. And uh, I always keep saying, it's very easy to work with her because I just tell her to uh, stare. What's her name, just for the benefit um, of our listeners? Amalia Ibsen Jansen. So she's also from my town and uh, we worked together on the previous film as well. So it was mostly on that film I had to sort of explain how I was thinking, uh, how... Because it feels very unnatural, I think, for her. She's like a comedic, uh, energetic uh, theater actor, actually. So she had to sort of, uh, I had to really try and f- communicate how it is natural when you don't do much on a screen like this. Sort of, uh, she had to get used to and had to trust that this way of acting works to keeping a lot of the things inside and just being very quiet and, and all that stuff. How did you do that, though? She's a very nice person, and we get along very well. So I think it's just time, just talking to each other, trusting each other. and uh, Because I'm not the best at communicating, so I, I think it takes some time. And she, she maybe she had to take a, like a leap of faith with just, uh, okay, this should work. And since we made the last film, and she sort of got a lot of... Uh, appreciation for the role there i think it was much easier this time to sort of continuing the a very similar mood of a character in a way can you one one of the thing one of the other things that i admire i i loved about this film was its representation of friendship uh, do you feel that this is also another important aspect of the film we don't surprisingly i feel like we don't really see a lot of films where the core kind of relationship between two of the lead characters of a movie share a, a kind of a nice, warm friendship. It's becoming increasingly rare, and I'm always curious as to why that might be. Well, they are girlfriends, though. So uh, that what you mean, that it's just a relationship? or Yeah, but I mean, it's not explicit that they're girlfriends, you know? Yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. it's never... It's a, you know, I mean, I, I never really go this might be me the way I perceive yeah, yeah. films <laughs> but I never really assume 
yeah. for me it's it's it, it works as a warm friendship too yeah. I mean, if you want to get into it, though, I mean, even when I see movies about relationships, it's never really a warm, warm relationships that I see. It's always kind of like um, aggressive to, to to some extent. Yeah, there there was always has to be drama or sex or and sex. Yeah, uh, no, no, I, I do like that you read it as a friendship. It actually is very nice, and uh, I I just wanted it to be two people just uh, liking each other, hanging out with each other, and having the, the the perfect relationship in a way the the sort of comfort of the other uh, yeah and i've heard that also that for a lot of people who watched the film that was sort of the key to understanding the main character as well that she had this uh, friend or a girlfriend who was just around her being nice Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Anders, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. It's uh, it's an awesome film, uh, Human Position. Thank you very much for joining us and talking with us about it. Thank you so much. Fred. Cinephile, welcome to the second part of our Celluloid Heroes segment, which aims to celebrate the life and legacy of an artist who left an indelible mark in the history of cinema. This week's artist is Frank Capra. One thing that may not even have been clear from my biographical overview of Capra of the first part of this week's segment is that he was incredibly prolific and that the many films I mentioned in that overview don't even scrape the surface of the 36 films that Capra spawned in his lifetime. So the task of selecting only three films is pretty difficult, but you probably won't find any shocks or surprises from the ones that I have selected. For example, my predictable first choice is It's a Wonderful Life from 1946, which is also the one Capra film that most will have seen. This is, of course, the now-classic Christmas tale about a banker driven to despair who wishes aloud that he had never been born and then gets to see how much poorer the world would have been without him. At $500,000, it was the most expensive film of Capra's career, but it was a colossal flop. For many contemporary viewers, perhaps, the film's heartwarming conclusion was not enough to balance the movie's dark vision of how cruel life could be. Only after It's a Wonderful Life was shown repeatedly on television in the United States, beginning in the 1970s, did audiences and critics recognize the film as Capra's masterpiece. The second film I have decided to highlight is Mr. Deeds Goes to Town from 1936, and this film I feel more than anything established that Capra-esque brand of sentimentalism, affirming democratic values, individual decency and perseverance, and the power of the ordinary American citizen to influence community and society. It's important to note that this Capra-esque brand of cinematic narrative was really the culmination of Capra's long-standing partnership with screenwriter Robert Riskin. Mr. Deeds Goes to Town is a David versus Goliath populist fable. Gary Cooper starred as Longfellow Deeds, a principled tuba-playing writer of greeting cards, sentiments from a small town in Vermont, who inherits his uncle's $20 million estate and moves to New York City to administer it. When Deeds decides to give the money to the less fortunate, his sanity is questioned. Gene Arthur plays a hard-boiled reporter who is suspicious at first of Deeds' motives, but who falls for him once she realizes his sincerity. Capra received a second Academy Award for Best Director for Mr. Deeds, which was nominated for Best Picture. And my third pick is another beloved movie. It happened one night from 1934, the one that affirmed Frank Capra as one of the great American filmmakers of his time. Produced at the tail end of the Great Depression, 
This is a quintessential screwball comedy and the first motion picture to win an Academy Award in five major categories. Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Director and Best Adapted Screenplay. The making of this enduring romantic comedy about a runaway heiress played by Claudette Colbert and a brash newspaper reporter played by Clark Gable who tracks her down and falls for her became familiar Hollywood lore. Gable who was one of MGM's biggest contract stars, was sent by the studio to work on Columbia's bargain basement production as punishment. Colbert was on loan from Paramount. The chemistry of their performances was electric and resulted in one of the best-loved movies of the 1930s. I must emphasize that there are many notable Capra films that I haven't mentioned either here nor in the first part of our Celluloid Heroes two-part segment. And that, quite frankly, is because of the sheer volume of his work, particularly in the golden period ranging from 1934 to 1946. For sure, the best way to find out about those flicks, including his collaborations with Barbara Stanwyck, is to get watching. Therefore, Cinephile, I leave it up to you. Red Film Radio. Cinephile, we have reached the end of yet another episode of the Big Fred Tuesday, but not without a regular cinephile recommendation for the week in a little segment that I like to call Popcorn Classics. And the film I have chosen for today is Badlands from 1973, which marked the arrival of Terence Malick, one of the most idiosyncratic voices in American film history. The movie is an impressionistic take on the notorious Charles Starkweather killing spree of the late 1950s and uses a serial killer narrative as a springboard for an oblique teenage romance lovingly and idiosyncratically enacted by Martin Sheen and Sissy Spacek. The film introduces many of the elements that would earn Malik his passionate following. The enigmatic approach to narrative and character, the unusual use of voiceover, the juxtaposition of human violence with natural beauty, the poetic investigation of American dreams and nightmares, and so on. This debut has spawned countless imitations, but none have equaled its strange sublimity. And even after so many other copycat films, or even similar films that were made before it, from Bonnie and Clyde to Crazy Pete and beyond, Badlands certainly stands out. For this reason and more, I declare Badlands from 1973 by Terence Malick a bona fide popcorn classic. I give it five bags of popcorn and five glasses of soda. And that's all for this episode of the Big Fred Tuesday. Join me again next week for more cinephile explorations and conversations. In the meantime, don't forget to check out more of our content across various channels and in multiple languages as well. Till the next time, stay healthy, stay safe, stay strong. Stay cinephile and stay tuned to Fred Film Radio, the festival insider. Fred, 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 Fred. Fred Film Radio, this is Nicole Comotti here at Venice Days. Fred Film Radio, sono Chiara Nicoletti. Angelo Acerbi, put Fred Film Radio, on air festival de Venice. Fred Film Radio, Zvami Sombor, Pretershik. Fred Film Radio, Radio Film of Fred, stay strong and Anna Tatarska. Fred, Fred, the festival experience in 23 languages. Fred Film Radio. 24-7 on Fred.fm and smartphone apps.